This is something like the sound that you would have heard on October 31st, 1517, if you were at Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. What is it? Well, it's the sound of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door of the church. I think it's fascinating that little did he know that this event would spark a worldwide church reform. This event continues to have implications that echo into today over half a millennium later. As many of us know, Martin Luther wrote the 95 Theses as a protest to the Catholic Church. What I wanted to talk about today on the anniversary of the Reformation, it's October 31st, was the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestant Christianity. I feel like we hear so much in our day and age, especially on the Roman Catholic side, that Roman Catholicism is just another section of Christianity. The line between Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism maybe is a little gray. I wanted to try to show today that Martin Luther made a distinction for a reason. So, the first thing I want to ask is, uh, is that true? Is it true that Roman Catholicism is just another section of Christianity? Is it like uh, a Baptist or a Presbyterian? Are they in Christ? Is someone who adheres to the Church of Rome for their theology, are they in Christ? By the grace of God, I believe I have narrowed down the differences between Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism down to two points. One of the points have five sub-points, but nevertheless, two points. The first one deals with how we are justified before our Maker. How are we justified before God? Is our salvation dependent upon the work that we do here on earth or the work that Christ did on the cross? Is our righteousness built off of us being righteous people or is our righteousness imputed to us through the righteous life that Christ lived? How are we justified? Well, What does the Bible say? You know, over the summer in July, I was actually privileged with the opportunity by the grace of God to go on a mission trip with my church to Salt Lake City, Utah. And here, and here we were able to meet a patriarch of the Mormon church. This is a leader, someone who is very highly respected in the Mormon church. People pay for him to have blessings, or it's said that when he shakes people's hands, he knows immediately whether or not the person he's shaking hands with is a true Mormon, or I guess a true follower of the LDS faith. My whole team was actually able to listen to this man as he was talking about their religion, and then there's a time where he opens it up for questions, and we can ask, he can ask questions, we can ask questions to him too. And kind of engage in this dialogue with this patriarch. And it was when we were here, we're talking about justification. We're talking about making it to heaven. 
and this is a whole nother really topic for, for a whole nother time, but I wanted to use this story um, from this experience. He said when we were there that there's basically three levels of heaven in Mormon belief. I know we're talking about Catholicism today, but for the sake of the story, um, I, I'm just drawing some comparisons. He says that there's three levels of heaven. There's the celestial kingdom, which is the highest level. There's the telestial and, and the terrestrial. And to make it to the next level, you have to kind of try your best and Jesus will do the rest. They believe that Jesus actually accomplished salvation, making how everyone makes it to the bottom level of heaven. And even the bottom level is greater than what we live here. But you kind of do your best and Jesus will do the rest. If you tried hard enough, if you went on your mission, you were as faithful of a Mormon as you can be, and you got concealed in the temple, you were baptized, you are baptized for your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, you can somehow be pulled into the next level of heaven. But even if you come up a little short, Jesus will do the rest. And that's their idea of grace. This is what the patriarch was telling us, a leader in the Mormon church. And his biblical justification for this, it was uh, James 2. James 2, when it says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. How often do we hear James 2 as an example that one is justified by works? And so the question I ask you today is, is James maybe at odds with Paul? Is James at odds with Paul? When Paul says that salvation is by grace through faith, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. I, I don't think so. In fact, the patriarch stands up and he says, how do you square that circle, Christian, Protestant Christian? He, 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 was, he was a very nice man, but he was basically saying, James 2 clearly says you're justified by works. And he was using this as a proof text, which ultimately led room to all sorts of error on his side. Hesitantly, I, I stood up and I said, sir, hi, my name is Ethan. Um, I noticed you asked the question, what do we think of James 2? I would just, I would like to respond to that. But before I get there, I believe in what theologians call tota scriptura, which means we should look at scripture in its totality. That not just scripture alone is sufficient, but scripture in its totality. For instance, Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, the entirety of your word is truth and all your righteous judgments endure forever. Numbers 23.19 says that God is not a man that he should lie. So God has given us this word. He's given us his whole word. And his whole word is from him, the source who cannot lie. And we look at the overall message of scripture. I believe it is very clear that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before his sight. That Romans 3 actually says that no, none of us are good. No, not even one. That's a reiteration of what it previously says in the Old Testament. In Psalm 14, that Jesus, that God looked to see if there was any good and he found none. In Ephesians 2, says that it is by grace through faith that you are saved. And it is not a work of yourself. In fact, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says that if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. 
And Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. I believe he did not mean, he did not mean the price was half paid, but he said paid in full. He didn't say three quarters there, finish the rest, you do the rest, but rather he paid the fine in full. And then I was able to tell him, and I, and I hope the message was clear, that what is James talking about here? What is James talking about in James chapter 2? Well, I don't believe he is talking about how one is justified before God. How one is justified, but rather how one shows their justification. Let me read the text. James 2 verse 10. Usually when you're talking about justification by works or faith and works, they'd go to start in verse 14, but let's start in verse 10. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. What is that saying? That you who try to do good, who fulfills the entire law besides one, you're just as guilty as the person who was bad from the beginning, who's broken every single commandment. Why? Because you were bad as well. You break one commandment, it's as if you've broken them all. Because God is so supremely holy, just, and righteous. And any ounce of imperfection must be punished. And that's context before verse 14. If you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. Verse 14 says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warned, and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no work, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Then he goes on to pull from the same person that Paul pulled from, proving justification in Romans 3. James pulls from the person of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Interesting. So, this is why I do not believe this section of scripture is talking about how you are justified, but how to show that you are justified. Because verse 10 says you've already broken it. You've already broken the commandments. You're already unholy in the sight of God. And the Bible describes God as a just judge. Thus, to be justified, you do not work harder because the problem is you have already broken God's law. 
It's like a a it's like a criminal who is standing before a judge and the judge says to the criminal who's broken the law, try harder from the fu- try harder in the future. No. That that's not the case. That is not just the judge to dismiss the crime that has occurred. It would be unjust of the judge to let that prisoner or that criminal free if they're going to try harder in the future. Or even they broke the law long ago in the past and then they were tried after they've done all these good things in between and they say, you can go. What's the problem? The problem is a price must be paid. And that's what James is saying in James 2 verse 10 when he says you have are all when he says you are already guilty of breaking all of the commandments. That's what he's saying. And he even says that you are trying to show your justification. It says but someone but someone may say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works he's talking about showing the faith which faith is the faith that is true faith that do faith that does not have fruit or faith that does faith that which faith is real which faith is dead which faith is dead which faith is alive the one that is working that shows out of gratitude what great things Jesus has done and now lives a life different and changed because of the work of Jesus Christ, recognizing the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do and we shall walk in them, or the one that sees the work that Christ did and yet lives their lives using grace as a license to sin whenever they want. No, you are saved by grace. You are saved through faith. But if you are truly saved, you will live a different life. Your life will be contrary to the life which you previously lived. You will give up sin. So is James at odds with Paul? Was this a Martin Luther versus the Pope kind of clash going on? No. No, this wasn't. James was going along with Paul. The Bible has no error. We'll touch on that further in the podcast. There you have it. So I don't believe James 2 stands. I don't believe you can hang so much upon that verse to try to prove your ideology that you can earn a right standing before God by being a good person. One can't believe that one is justified by the grace of God and works. The other one believes man is justified by grace alone, which leads to the second point, very similar to the first in in certain ways. The second point is the five solas. The five solas. These are beautiful, beautiful truths. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, Sola Scriptura and Sola Deo Gloria, which are grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, 
all for the glory of God alone. These are five essential core doctrines, in fact, differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestant Christianity. Let me explain. Roman Catholics would actually affirm four out of these five. They would say, yes, you are saved by grace. You are saved by faith. You are saved through Christ. And you are saved for the glory of God. Isn't that interesting? They might leave out the word alone. But what is so clearly and evidently not affirmed is sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. Here is what that means. Before the 1500s, the contrast between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism was much harder to see. What was the Reformation? Well, it was a time when when people throughout Europe decided to split away from the Catholic Church because they were convicted of what the Scriptures teach. They believed the teachings of the Catholic Church were contrary to that of Scripture. Thus, men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, Philip Melanchthon, John Huss, Wycliffe, Tyndale, they all stood up and they held to what is known as sola scriptura. In fact, is the sola in which every other sola hangs upon. Every other sola hangs upon. In fact, I believe sola scriptura is the main difference between Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism. This is where we determine who is true, who is right. This is where we determine the differences. What are they? What are the differences? Well, it is made evident in sola scriptura. Roman Catholics affirm that the church... Not scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith on earth. When on the contrary, classical Protestants, in fact, to be Protestant, you would affirm that not the church, but the scriptures, God's word alone is the sole infallible rule of faith, the scriptures. It's interesting that once the Bible became in the language of the average everyday person, Protestant Christianity exploded. It exploded because more and more people were convinced that the truths that Protestantism teaches is right along with the truths of Scripture. And it was actually evident that because the Bible was not in the language of the common people, that the average everyday person couldn't pick up the word of God and read it. That the church, that the Roman Catholic Church was able to distort whatever they wanted. The Bible was not in the language of the people. People didn't have access to the word. There weren't people living by the book because it wasn't in their language. So the church was able to distort it however they wanted, and it was, with indulgences. In fact, that's mainly what 95 Theses are about. Martin Luther is protesting the idea of indulgences. His 68th Theses 
says this, indulgences are nevertheless, in truth, the most insignificant graces when compared to the grace of God in the piety of the cross. Where did Luther get this idea? Well, from Scripture. From Scripture. Galatians 2.21 says, If righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. If you adhere to sola scriptura, then you would believe Jesus at his word when he said on the cross, It is finished, paid in full. So one side believes that Jesus Christ died, and it is necessary. He was, it was necessary for him to die, but we must work hard to maintain a right standing before God, or even to earn it in the first place. But Paul comes along and says that if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. And this is the message that the Reformers preached. That righteousness was not, that righteousness is not found in obtaining righteousness, in fulfilling the law because we can't. And if you've broken it once, like James says, then you're guilty of breaking it all. It doesn't matter how good you are. You mess up one time, you're done. You're done. That's why we need, we need, in desperate need, with no other option, a substitutionary atonement made. The wrath of God must be poured out, must be satisfied somewhere. Because the reality is we've broken God's law. If we've broken his law, then his wrath must be satisfied. The Hilosmos propitiation must occur. The appeasement of the wrath of God must occur. And this cannot happen in being a good person, in fulfilling the law of God, and trying to follow the Ten Commandments. Why? Because we can't and we haven't. And Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of God. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts, they're deceitful and they're desperately wicked. So, the five solas. All hung up upon this idea that the scriptures alone are the sole infallible rule of faith. And our lives must be conformed to the truths of Scripture because man is flawed. Man fails. Man is fallible. Which means man makes mistakes. But God, but God gave us his word. And his word is infallible. His word is inerrant. His word is sufficient. And his word very clearly states, it is by grace. It is by grace that you have been saved. And this is not a work of you. This is nothing you can boast. And if it was a work of you, then you would have some measure to boast. In fact, Paul, the apostle, says that if anyone had reason to boast, if anyone, maybe it was him. In fact, he said that he was a keeper of the law. He said, he 
when people tried to bring a charge against his understanding, he persecuted them in Romans, in Philippians chapter 3, he says that. That if anyone has reason to boast, it was Paul. And yet, what does he say? He says that he counts all these religious credits as dung for the, surpass, for the sake of knowing Christ. He counts these as worthless for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus. So, friends, we are saved by grace alone. We are saved through faith alone. We are saved on the merits and the work of Christ alone, not our own. And all this is displayed perfectly and beautifully in the scriptures alone. All for the purpose to the end of God's glory alone. If we could earn a right standing before him, then there would be reason and room for us to be glorified. And that's a tragedy. Because we don't deserve it. Because we have spat in our Savior's face. Because we chose the fruit rather than and it rather than a relationship because we chose our sin rather than a holy god we chose to spit in his face we chose to trample underfoot the son of god we don't deserve glory but god does does Salvation occur when one trusts in the sufficient atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Did Jesus mean it when he said it is finished? As displayed in the scriptures, in the infallible word of God, or are we justified before God? by somehow earning a right standing before him, even though we've already broken his law? Are we justified even though we've already broken his law? Would God be a just God to send someone who has broken his law into heaven? Let me ask that question to you. No matter how hard you work to try to pay it off, if you have broken God's law, would that be just of him to accept you into his presence? No. In fact, it would be unjust of God. And the Bible describes God as a just judge, so it is impossible to earn a right standing, to work hard, to attain this state of perfection to attain to attain this state of righteous in the sight of God it's impossible so salvation was accomplished on the cross through Jesus's substitutionary death through the double imputation that took place you can get to heaven he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me encourage you to stand strong on the truths of Scripture. When people stand up and they bring a reproach to 
the word of God. Stand up. Speak up. Stand firm on the revealed word of God. It alone is the sole infallible rule of faith. People died trying to preserve this word. Polycarp burnt to death. William Tyndale. Huss. Eleven of twelve of the apostles all died and many more to the end of preserving the word of God because they understood the scriptures they had and the scriptures they possessed was in fact the words of God. Trust in the sufficient death of Christ. And those are the differences between Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Thanks for listening.